we'll take our Bibles this morning and go to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter number 12. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to uh, bow for a moment and ask the Lord to bless our time together in the preaching of his word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. As we've already uplifted your name in singing, um, we know that you are worthy. We know that you are glorious. We know that you are mighty. Um, we know that you are sufficient and significant in, in every area of life. And so we come to you today as we open up your holy word and we pray that you will bless it, that you will accomplish the purpose that you have for it, that it will not return void. We pray that you would prepare our hearts even now to receive what you have for us and change us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be more like him. We pray your blessing upon this time as well as we begin this sermon, we also begin a ministry, we begin a, a journey together as a church and we pray your blessing upon that journey, that you'll be with us through it and strengthen us and guide us and unite us for your glory and by your grace. We pray that your presence would be with us as we open up your word in Christ's name. Amen. Most of the events surrounding the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament are described in the Old Testament by a ceremony or a sacrament. Um, or a sacrifice. Um, you see a, a number of different events in the Old Testament, and we often look at those events and, and don't connect them to um, their proper meaning or purpose. And um, each story in the Old Testament has a New Testament fulfillment, and often that fulfillment, for the most part, is fulfilled by and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, these are called a foreshadowing. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 actually calls them a shadow of things that are to come. And Easter and the um, Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, are no different. And we can go back into the Old Testament and we can find what the actual meaning of Easter is and what the actual meaning of Palm Sunday is. And as we um, sang about and looked in, uh, we can look in Matthew chapter number 21 and we see the Lord entering into Jerusalem and we see the people all excited and um, they're waving palm branches and they're placing their garments on the ground and they're, they're paving a way for the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and to be their king. Um, we know that just four days from this event, um, many of these same people are going to be crying out, crucify him. That the events of Palm Sunday are really not the introduction of Jesus Christ coming into, the, into Jerusalem to be their king, but the events of Palm Sunday are Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem to be their sacrificial lamb. He is going to be the king. He is the king, and he will one day introduce his kingdom here on this earth, and we'll be able to rule and reign with him, the Bible teaches in Revelation, for 1,000 years. And we look forward to that. But the issue that, that the Jewish people faced in the time of Palm Sunday as well as Easter and, and thereafter was they didn't understand the necessity of the sacrificial lamb in preparation for the kingdom. I've often told people this, without Palm Sunday and Easter, there is no kingdom. And Jesus Christ came the first time to make a way for there to be a kingdom. He will come the second time for him for, to establish the kingdom, uh, to make the kingdom present with us. 
And what we look at in Palm Sunday and Easter is we don't look at Jesus Christ as king as much as we look at Jesus Christ, the, the sacrificial lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You see, Easter and Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross is what made it possible for, for me and for you to be a part of his kingdom. It's all about deliverance. It's about salvation. It's about Jesus Christ setting his people free, delivering them from something. And, and we know that that deliverance is a deliverance from sin. But also protecting them from God's wrath. The events of Easter week are foretold, also known as Holy Week, are foretold in the Old Testament by the, by the Passover. And the reason why we're in Exodus chapter number 12 is because the Passover describes for us what takes place in the Palm Sunday and the sacrifice of Christ. And not so much the resurrection, but perhaps the effects or the impact of the resurrection this is talked about exclusively or extensively in Exodus chapter number 12. Um, but it's also mentioned, the Passover is also mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. Um, 25 of those times are specifically related to the Lord and his work of redemption. The work of redeeming his people. You can turn to the book of John. I won't have you turn there this morning, but you can look at the book of John. You can actually look at each one of the four epistles, and you can look at the time of Jesus Christ and his entering into Jerusalem and his sacrifice, and you will, you will consistently see the term Passover used. And the Lord uses and consistently describes and points to the fact that the, the time of the Lord's death in Jerusalem is similar to the time of his of the sacrificial lamb in the time of the Israelites' bondage to the Egyptian people. We know that the Israelites were in bondage to them for 430 years. At the end of that 430 years, God um, calls Moses. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. Um, you know the story of Moses. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to set my people free from the Egyptians. Moses goes back, he, he obeys God, he takes, his, he takes Aaron with him, and uh, he goes back, and, and then there's ten plagues. And the last of those ten plagues was the most significant of the ten plagues, and it was the death angel. And in the tenth plague, what God, what God shows us, and it's interesting because the other plagues, the other nine plagues didn't impact the Israelite people. They were all focused on and devoted to the Egyptian people. But the 10th plague was, was promised to both groups. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us whoever did not obey God's command to kill that lamb and to place the, the blood on the doorpost and mantle, that that, that that last plague would impact everyone who didn't obey God in this way. So the implication was not just Egyptian at that time, but it was, but it was also for the Jews. They had to obey God, they had to submit to God, and they had to surrender to God as well. The Old Testament Passover lamb is fulfilled in the New Testament with the Lamb of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. In 1 John 1, he is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And in Romans 5 and verse 9, he has said, it is said that through his blood, we will be justified and saved from the wrath of God through him. The primary theme of Palm Sunday and the Passover is the deliverance of God's people. It is salvation. It is, it is them being set free from bondage, 430 years of it in the Old Testament, and being set free in the New Testament from a certain bondage as well. In addition to that, it is about being protected. It is God protected his people, get this, God protected his people from himself. He protected his people from his own wrath in Exodus 12. And in the same way with the crucifixion and the resurrection, God protects his people from himself. Paul Washer once said that the problem with God's goodness is God's goodness. It's the fact that God cannot be evil. God cannot accept evil. God cannot allow evil. God cannot look upon evil. When Moses asked to see God, to see God's glory, God told Moses, I cannot show you my glory, for if I showed you my glory, you would immediately die. Jesus Christ is the deliverer. He is the savior. He is the one who sets us free from our sins and the one that protects us from the wrath of Almighty God. We also notice this before we read our text. We notice that the way of salvation and the way of deliverance is an, exclu is an, is an exclusive way. It's not inclusive where everybody can come in their own way. The Lord told them in Exodus 12 as well as the Lord tells us in the New Testament that there is one way to be delivered from our sins. There is one way to be set free from our unrighteousness. And there is one way to be protected from God's wrath. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come through the Father except through me. You see, the people that celebrated Jesus Christ's entry into Jerusalem were excited about him becoming king because they knew all of the wonderful things that he had done for them. It's almost in so many ways like when, the, when Jesus Christ fed the 5,000 with, with some bread and a few fish, right? And they followed him the next day, and what did they want? They wanted more bread and more fish. They wanted to experience this, this miracle of turning a few into much. They wanted to be fed physically, and, and so many people want what Jesus Christ offers physically, they want to experience all these wonderful things, but what we don't understand, what's missed, is that what's going to happen follow Jesus Christ's resurrection. And all of those who follow, follow Jesus Christ is not that things are going to get better. It's not that everything's going to be hunky-dory. There's not going to be any problems anymore. There's not going to be any tribulation or trial. But, but no, we know from the word of God that things were going to get more difficult. They were going to be harder on those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, an, it, is an, it is an exclusive way. There's one way to come to the Lord, to the Father, and experience deliverance and experience grace and mercy. And it is, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Let's read uh, together, if you'll follow along with me, 
in Exodus chapter number 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The month was the month Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. The Bible says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall talk according to the uh, number of persons, according to what each one can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly and the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at midnight. Let me just stop there for a moment. Could God not be more specific? I mean, couldn't he have left some room for the people who wanted to do it a little bit differently? Maybe I want to keep my lamb for just two days. Or or maybe I wanted to just, uh, you know, I wanted to go with a different animal. Couldn't God have just left some room? Maybe, Maybe God could have been more gracious, right? Could God have been more gracious? Can God, listen, can God ever be more gracious? God is the essence of grace. There's no way for God to be more gracious because he is grace. And what he does in this moment, when he defines and points to and directs and gives instruction, is he he shows them the essence of grace. God did not have to do those things, but he But yet he chose to because he loved his people. The Bible goes on to say, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the the two doorposts and on the lintel of the household in uh, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And if you study the if you study the, the, the ceremony here, the, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread was a, was a picture of cleanliness. Leaven in the scriptures is a picture of sin. And there was to be no sin in the, in, the, in the house during this time. There would be no leaven in the house at this time. And then the bitter herbs were a picture of the last 430 years. It was to remind them of what they had been through. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted in fire and Unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts, and, they shall, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." 
And we know the story. The Bible says that that night the death angel passes over. And and remember this about the firstborn in the home. If you go back in the text, the Lord says that the children of Israel are my children. They're my firstborn son. He tells tells Pharaoh, he says, if you will not let my firstborn son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. He tells him this at the very beginning of the process. And then he sends nine plagues, nine other plagues leading up to this this, this event, this judgment, this ultimate judgment, which was the destruction, which was the death of the firstborn son in, in each family. All, the Bible says, of the Israelites put the blood on the doorpost and mantle. Every one of them. Not one, the Bible says, of the Israelites, the Hebrew people, faced God's wrath on that night. You know what that is? That's Grace. It's grace. It's grace that God made a way, but it's also grace that not one single Hebrew person didn't follow that path. Not one of God's people refused to do as God commanded. That's also God's grace. The Bible doesn't say that he just calls us to salvation, but John chapter number six tells us that he brings us there. He carries us. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is that he calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But the grace of God is also that he works in us that which he calls us us to accomplish. The theme of Palm Sunday and Easter and the theme of Passover is the deliverance and the protection of God's people. Maybe you're here this morning and there's something that you need to be delivered from. There's nothing more important and significant that we need to be delivered from than sin. Amen? Maybe you're here and there's something you need to be delivered from. Maybe you're struggling with something. You're having a battle with something. I believe that God's word teaches us within this text how we can experience deliverance. How we can experience true and spiritual and final deliverance. I'm going to give you some thoughts here based upon our text as well as based upon some of the prior passages of Scripture in the book of Exodus. The main theme of God working with his children in the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt is believing in God, is believing God. Um, That was their biggest struggle. As a matter of fact, Moses said to God on several occasions, "The the people of Israel will not believe They will not listen to my voice. They will not heed my instructions. They will not follow what I tell them to do. The children of Israel simply will not believe. That's a struggle that we all face, isn't it? It's a battle that we all deal with on a regular basis. Believing in God and trusting him. Three thoughts this morning. Number one. In order for them to experience the deliverance that God was offering, they had to believe God about the seriousness of their condition. In order to experience deliverance and protection from God's wrath, they had to believe God that their situation was crucial. Their situation was critical. We know in the first 11 chapters that God sends 10 plagues or 9 plagues on the Egyptian people. 
And each time he sends them a plague, the Bible says that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense for God. He says, I'm going to send you a plague. I'm going to send something on you to, to, to basically bring hurt to you. And the goal of that is so that you'll let my people go, right? That's the goal of the plagues is that he will let the people go. But then he says, at the end of each plague, he says, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let his people go. And does that make any sense to you? Why would God send the plague on Pharaoh and then harden Pharaoh's heart so he wouldn't let the people go? Here's the reason. God, God's focus in the ten plagues was never on Pharaoh. God's focus in the ten plagues was always on Israel. You see, what God was doing was God was preparing Israel to leave Egypt. God was making it very clear to Israel, you can't stay here. You've got to go. And Israel and Egypt is a picture of the world in the, in the scriptures. He tells them at the beginning, Moses goes there and he tells them, you know, throw your rod on the ground, it will become a serpent. He does that. He tells them, Aaron, Aaron says to, Aaron says to um, Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And here's, what, and here's what Pharaoh does. Remember? Take away all their straw, but they must continue to make bricks. And they must continue to build, and their productivity cannot go down at all. So right away, what we think of is Pharaoh's a real jerk, Right? Do you, know who's, do you know who's ramping up the workload? Do you know who's ramping up the bondage? Do you know who's making the bondage be felt really, be, be really felt? God is. God is ramping the situation up so that his children will realize, his children will understand, his children will recognize that they are in bondage to Egypt. What we know is this. Even after all of the plagues that the children of Israel went through, right? The most, the most horrible one is they saw, in one night, they saw the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians, right? When they're wandering in the wilderness, where do they want to go? They wanted to go back, didn't they? Even with all of the things that they had gone through, they still wanted to go back into Egypt, God knew their heart. God knew. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us, if you, if you read in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 of the same of Exodus, what you'll find is the Lord says, I'm sending all of these things so that, so that, so that Pharaoh will push them out. He will drive them out. God knew what it was going to take to get his people to leave Egypt. And listen, God knows what it's going to take to get us to leave Egypt. God knows what it's going to get to know what it's going to take to get us to be free, to truly be free, to become a part of his family. So he sends this, he sends, first of all, he ramps up their work to help them understand that they are in bondage. This morning we're not in bondage to Egypt. That that I know of. Right? That's that was supposed to be funny. 
We're not in bondage to Egypt, but listen to me. There's not a soul on the face of the earth that's not in bondage to sin. If you study the word of God, you will see this unfolding of the prison that sin is in the life of every individual that doesn't know Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says that we cannot obey the law of God. It is impossible for us to do so. The Bible teaches that we can't even understand the things that are of God. It is impossible for us to understand spiritual things because we are carnally minded. We don't understand the depths of our, of our depravity and the depths of our sinfulness. We don't realize in so many ways, like Palm Sunday, that we need a lamb before we can ever have a king. We need someone to stand in our place as a sacrifice before we can ever stand, he can ever stand in our place as our Lord. We have to understand the nature and the extent of our bondage. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 and verse 10, there are none good, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. Genesis 6 and verse 5, the Bible says that all of their imaginations, every thought and intent of their heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it. And Isaiah 64 and verse 6 tells us that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Listen, folks, we've got to come to a recognition of how extensive our bondage is before we'll ever come to Jesus Christ for deliverance. We may come to Jesus Christ for benefits. Right? We may come to Jesus Christ to experience what he can give us to, to have his blessing on our choices and directions and things in life. But it's not until we realize our depravity to recognize the state and condition of our hearts that we will come to Jesus Christ. We will fall down on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me for I am a you know it. We've got to see ourselves as God sees us. The Bible actually says in 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? We love that verse. But here's what he says. When he says, if you will confess your sins, he says this. In the Greek, the, the, the phrase literally means, if you will call your sin what God calls your sin. It's a whole different world to see ourselves as broken and depraved and hopeless and helpless and to come to Jesus Christ, the only one who can save and find hope and help and strengthen him. We need to, first of all, acknowledge the nature of our sin and our bondage. We need to, number two, acknowledge the nature and extent of God's wrath. God is a very angry God. I know we miss that in his grace and his long suffering and his patience. But listen, folks, read Revelation. 
Read the last book. Everything is going to unfold and we are going to see God's wrath poured out in an extraordinary way. Romans 1 and verse 18 says, The wrath of God will be poured out on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. This is not a minor situation. This is a major situation. If our children were in this situation in a physical way, they are in a spiritual way. But if our children were in this type of facing this kind of wrath in a physical way, we would, we would do everything in our power to protect them from it, wouldn't we? But yet for some reason, because it's spiritual, we just kind of brush it aside and it's not that big of a deal. No, it is. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. We are, we are literally on the precipice today of God's return. We see this, this movement of wickedness in our world. And we know that God's wrath is, is close. And we trust that his return is soon. John MacArthur once said, one of the issues with Christianity today is that we have sought to make the Titanic more comfortable and not to get people into lifeboats. We must believe what God says about us. We must believe that we are in bondage to sin and we are at the precipice of God's wrath and we deserve to be there. That's what the Jews had to accept. Number two, we must believe God for a sufficient and trustworthy sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 and verse 22 that, um, I'm going to turn there. You ever draw a blank like that before? <laughs> I'm going to just, now it's back to me. <laughs> I got it. The Lord says, where there is no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There must be a sacrifice. There must be a sacrifice. Now, what's important about this sacrifice is twofold. Number one, they brought the sacrifice in the house. Two things about that sacrifice. He had to be perfect. It had to be perfect, pure, right? And it had to be um, one year old. Let me give you these thoughts really quickly. Number one, it was a picture of Jesus Christ in that he was perfect and he was pure. The Bible says that he was chosen by God wasn't chosen by men, but he was chosen by God. And the four days on Palm Sunday, which would have been the 10th of Nisan, they would, have, they would have brought Jesus Christ into Jerusalem the same way they did in the Old Testament. They brought the lamb into the household. And then during that time, they evaluated that lamb. They sought to know that lamb's purity. It, this was a big deal. Listen, if somebody put the blood of a lamb that wasn't perfect on the doorpost and mantle, what would happen to their firstborn? Die. Whoa. I mean, even though they had the right motives and everything was there, if they didn't put the right blood on the doorpost and mantle, that was serious. Right? So for four days, they, they evaluated this lamb. May I submit to you that the four days that Jesus Christ was in Jerusalem was a time of evaluation? Jesus was proving himself. When he turned those tables over, he proved who he was. When he talked about Matthew 23, the Pharisees, he proved who he was. When he went through, Peter tells us, when he went through all of the suffering and pain, the Bible says that he was reviled, but what? But he reviled not again. You know what he was doing? He proved who he was. 
The word of God tells us that there was no, no more evidence necessary for us to believe that Jesus Christ was the preferred, chosen sacrifice for our sins. He was preferred or chosen or selected. He was perfect in every way. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 and verse number 15 that we have a high priest um, who, can, who understands us because he has been tempted in all ways as we have been tempted, yet without, without sin. Without sin. Let me turn in 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb. He's the proven lamb. He was the prepared lamb. On a few occasions, Jesus Christ was actually anointed prior to his entering Jerusalem, was anointed for his burial. We must trust that Jesus Christ is sufficient. There is no other way. There is no other option. Jesus Christ is the sufficient one. We must trust in a disruptive sovereign. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor John? Simply this. When you brought a one-year-old lamb into your household for four days, do you know what he did? He turned tables over, didn't he? He did. He messed things up. When Jesus Christ comes to live within our lives, he's going to mess things up. Amen? Amen. He's going to mess things up. He's going to stir us up. He's going to change us. He's going to transform us. He's going to make our lives. He's going to make our homes. He's going to make our hearts different. doesn't always get easier, does it? But it is better, amen? I think I heard somebody say that back there. It doesn't always get easier, but it is better. It's so true. So true. We must trust Jesus Christ to disrupt our lives. You can imagine if I'm in their shoes, I've got this one-year-old lamb in my household, there are probably days that I'm thinking I'd, I would rather not have this one-year-old lamb in my household, right? Are there days that we would think I'd rather not have Jesus in my life? Are there days where things get so difficult that being a follower of Jesus is harder than not being a follower of Jesus? Yes, there are. But I will submit to you the end result is always better. Amen? I can get an amen out of that, right? We must trust Jesus as a disruptive Sovereign. 1 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. A preacher once told me this. He said, you know something? I never understand why people ask me why the Christian life is so hard. He said this. When they ask me, I simply tell them this. If you can realize how far you are from the goal, you'll understand why it's so difficult. We've got a long way to go. We're going. John Piper always says it this way. You may not be running. You may not be walking. You may not be crawling. You just might be scratching, but that's okay. As long as you're moving in the right direction. Amen? We've got to trust that Jesus Christ was the chosen one. The only chosen one. 
we've got to trust that he is the one who will disrupt our lives for good, not for evil. The last thought this morning is simply this. We must believe God that Jesus Christ sustains and satisfies us. The last step is we have to embrace Jesus. You get that? The Bible says at the end of this, um, back in Exodus 12, the last step in the process is they had to do what? They had to eat, right? They had to eat the body. John chapter number six in the New Testament tells us the same thing. It says, you cannot be mine lest you eat my body and drink my blood. Now here's what's interesting. Go to John six and read it at your convenience. The Bible is not talking about the Lord's Supper, okay? I don't want to stir anything up, but the Bible is not talking about the Lord's Supper in this text. The Bible is talking about belief. It's talking about embracing. In order to be a Christian, it's not just believing that the lamb is, that the, lamb is the right lamb. It's not just believing any, even in it allowing him to disrupt our lives. The most important and significant part is when we embrace Jesus. When we when we partake of him, he becomes for us our satisfaction in life. He becomes for us that which sustains us. The Bible tells us in John 4 4 and verse 14 that Jesus Christ is the water of life and those who drink will never, will never thirst, amen? John 6, he tells us he's the bread of life. Those who eat will never thirst. A Christian will find that Jesus Christ is all satisfying. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is like a treasure that's hidden in the field. When somebody finds it, they go and they sell all that they have, right? Because they want that. That is Jesus Christ as your treasure. Jesus told the rich man in Matthew 9, he said, if you want to be my disciple, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. The gospel is not go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, is it? But in order for him to embrace Christ, he had to let go of something. We must find that Jesus is all satisfying. Maybe you're here this morning. You're struggling with whatever. You're, you're bound to sin and you know it. And you've tried every way possible to be set free. You felt God's anger towards it. You felt God's wrath. And, and you've tried to go to church more. And you've tried to give more on the offering plate. And you've tried to do the Lord's Supper more. And you've tried to sing louder when the congregation sings. And you try to do all of these things to somehow placate this angry God towards our sinfulness. There's no way to placate our God. Jesus Christ was sent 2,000 years ago to come in our place, to die for us, to set us free from sin and to deliver us from God's wrath. The only way that we can be delivered from God's wrath is by trusting solely in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He promises us in his word in John 6 and verse 37, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's hope there, isn't there? 
Yes, our God is angry towards sin, but he made a way to be delivered. I close with 1 John 1 and verse 9. I quoted it to you earlier. If we confess our sins, if we can confess our sinfulness, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the greatest thing about Palm Sunday is that the Lamb of God entered into Jerusalem to take his people's sins on himself, to pay for them completely, to satisfy God's wrath, Isaiah 53, on their behalf, then to rise the third day. Amen? He he isn't in the grave anymore, is he? He wins. And listen, you come to him in humility, repentance, and faith, you win with him. Amen? Isn't that good to know? That's good news. So I encourage you this morning, you're here, maybe you've never seen Jesus. Maybe you've seen him as a benefit giver. Listen, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will save you this morning if you will come to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for a day that has been set aside to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And I pray that if there's one here in our midst that doesn't know you as their Savior and their Lord. I pray this morning if they would kneel before you, recognize that they are in bondage, Lord, that there is no freedom in sin. Realize that God's wrath is currently resting on them and come to Jesus for salvation, for freedom, and for protection. I pray your blessing upon your word this morning, that you will be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen.